Welcome to the Clinical Research Podcast, bringing you the latest developments in research explained by our world-leading clinicians, academics and scientists based in Nottingham. Clinical research is very much about collaboration, which means it can often also be very much about lots of organisations with lots of initials. We try not to burrow too deeply into that particular rabbit hole unless we really have to, but for this episode, we really have to. Rather than people or particular studies, it's about plans for the future of clinical research in Nottingham, which means understanding a little bit of how all the parts fit together. A lot of health research in the UK is planned and funded by the appropriately named National Institute for Health Research, often abbreviated to NIHR. One of the ways the NIHR organises research is through a network of biomedical research centres, often abbreviated to BRCs. Those BRCs in turn bring together hospital and university researchers to focus on how academic research can be translated into practical results for patients. And Nottingham has one of those BRCs, known unsurprisingly as, putting all the parts together, the NIHR Nottingham Biomedical Research Centre. Like most BRCs, the NIHR Nottingham BRC focuses on a number of different diseases and conditions, and we group the studies for these together in six research themes. The themes involve respiratory medicine, hearing, musculoskeletal, mental health and technology, and gastrointestinal and liver disorders. In Nottingham, the sixth theme provides access to our expertise in magnetic resonance imaging. And as you will hear in this week's episode, this is central to the research being done by the team from gastrointestinal and liver. You'll hear four people. In order, Professor Guru Etal, who leads the theme, then Professor Penny Gowland, who's part of the Magnetic Resonance Imaging team, then Neil Guha, who's a hepatology professor, and Dr Gordon Moran, who's an associate professor of gastroenterology. A couple of the team mentioned some work by a colleague called Luca. That's Professor Luca Marciani, whose study, called MAGIC, helps treat constipation in children by using markers to track food moving through their digestive systems. There's more information on all of them in the show notes. Professor Etal started by talking about how funding came to be focused in specific research areas. We had three main areas, uh, which were infections, which is H. pylori, uh, Clostridium difficile and viral hepatitis, then um, physiology, uh, which was relating to inflammation-related um, consequences of uh, body physiology, as well as um, liver metabolism-related body physiology changes. And um, we were using imaging as a tool, as well as uh, 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 a test. From my point of view, we were always welcomed within this theme and the idea of doing interdisciplinary science is that everybody brings their own expertise to the table so we brought the imaging and we could work with people who had interesting questions and were able to express them to us in a way that we could then design the answers so i've been meeting with gordon this morning and you know you have to say to the people who've got the problems what exactly is it you're looking for and then we can design the solution to fit that Whereas, you know, just us coming up with a method is no good. It has, we have to be working absolutely in, in um, lockstep. Um, we're part of the group, even though we're not formally part of the group. Walk me through, if, have you got an example, maybe uh, a research question that you guys wanted to deal with and how the imaging was able to help with that? When I first was appointed in 2009, I was, I was interested in um, finding better tests um, 
for not only um, design, for understanding the severity of liver disease, but how it um, affects outcomes. So I had a, a meeting within six months of starting with Penny and, and Sue Francis about um, some of the imaging protocols that they'd already um, developed um, for liver disease. And we set about designing a, a study where we got um, an, a, you know, a new imaging protocol that not just looked at the liver, but looked at the heart, the kidneys, you know, and the blood vessels um, in, a, in a cohort of patients with severe disease. And we tracked them going forward. Um, and we were able to track them so we could predict which patients were to go and get a clinical outcome. And, and that was novel in terms of bringing together all those protocols from using our MR scientists from Penny and Sue in the group. It was also novel in terms of, um, it was the first imaging study to look at, to look at those outcomes together. Um, and it used the infrastructure in terms of our large burden of liver disease. Um, and, th and that study was then published four years later, um, you know, in, in, in one of our leading liver journals. For me, that, that was something that we, we were only able to do because of the BRC. I don't think we'd have been able to do that in, 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 in other centers. That's quite an interesting um, contrast because what uh, Neil's just discussed is the need for the entire infrastructure to make that work. You know, you, you need the cohorts of patients, you need them um, monitored, you need them tracked, you need to bring them in. The whole of the bigger BRC infrastructure is absolutely essential to that. Um, the imaging, um, in that case, I guess in some ways we knew what we wanted to do there. It, the, the measures were, at least the ones that were done originally, were um, in the literature. We had to create them and we had to create them in a way that could be done efficiently and rapidly uh, in a clinically appropriate manner. But we weren't sort of starting from afresh within a sort of completely, you know, what are we going to measure here, which is sometimes more the case in what we do more recently, including in the in the liver. Um, the example I was thinking of this morning is is completely opposite of that. Um, Gordon's interest in the vascularization of the bowel wall, and we don't know how to do it. You know, we don't know what to do. So what we're doing is we're trying lots of different things that we can measure to try and achieve that. And, and what the question came up to Gordon is, what exactly is it you're talking about? What exactly is it you're looking at? So that we can, because we've now got something and now we can try and match our outcome measure, our, our, our quantification of the data to that. What we're describing is something very important and unique. So, so for a, a study of any form that involves patients, for it to be successful, you need a really good outcome measure. You need something that can be measured. It, you can repeat it, it's stable, it changes with disease, it changes with treatment. And, and that's what, what we, so, and that what we were talking today with Penny was, so my interest is in measuring disease activity and scarring as well in the bowel. And what we wanted to measure is, so usually we tend to give an injection called gadolinium, for instance, in MRI, which we try and avoid using because of cost and adverse events and, and all that. So in this case, we wanted to measure blood supply to the gut, which increases with inflammation, with something called time of light. But me as a clinician, I don't understand what time of light is, but actually when we start talking, what time of light is, is what I see in endoscopy, which is essentially what we call loss of vascular pattern. It, once the blood vessels start getting engorged, you start seeing them. And what time of light me is, measures that? So then we try to match 
what Penny can measure in physics to what I want to measure in the patient in clinic. Create something, measure it against the gold standard, and put it out there. And that is, if you like, what we, what we I think, Nottingham are good at because of the skills we have in physics and the clinical cohorts we have is creating outcomes eventually. So we've got now novel outcomes in liver. We've got, for instance, Guru has worked a lot to try and validate T2, which is a measure in the gut. It was for liver, but it really helps me in the gut as well. We're trying to improve things in fibrosis, but if we can actually create all these measures, this is what academia and, and industry will use to measure their drugs. So this will bring back the focus to Nottingham as a, as, as a unit that actually creates outcomes through imaging. We as a BRC, we as a group have been quite effective in translating um, discovery into a diagnostic uh, tools. Um, in liver, we have contributed substantially um, to new way of identifying fibrosis with both blood tests as well as imaging. And you heard some of the MRI uh, tools we have developed from uh, Neil. Uh, we can measure portal pressure with that. We can measure scarring in the liver and uh, luminal gastroenterology wise. I think Penny can tell number of methods they have used have been a contribution from Nottingham. The most widely um, exploited tool probably that we've developed is the one for measuring small bowel water. So we had, um, we can measure the sort of flow through the gut, movement through the gut, but small bowel water was probably the one that nobody else would have thought of, that there's the sort of, you know, pushed the limits of MRI really at the time when we did it. And we did it very early on actually. Small bowel water is not a quantitative measure so much as an index of small bowel water, but it turns out to be extremely powerful looking both response to drugs and looking at normal physiology and response to feeding, response to fat. So that was one of them. The other measures that we've come up with are uh, measurement of flow through the guts, measurement of volumes, movement, movement through the gut from the stomach to the colon. But the other thing that's most likely to be picked up clinically, I think, is Lucas beads. So um, Luke has developed a method using little markers, little beads that you swallow and you simply go through your gut. And this allows you to monitor the transit of the food through the gut. Whereas normally with MRI, we're looking at a, a sort of snapshot and we can't say if this bit of the content of your gut has been there two hours or, or 10 minutes, or at least not very easily. But with, uh, with Luca's markers, we can monitor the movement through the gut completely. And so he can then look at the changes in the rate of transit in uh, constipation, or again, in potentially in response to feeding going forward. So that's, those two measures are probably the ones that are most widely used, but there are, there are, there's a multiple multitude of measures. We're currently aiming at measuring pH in the gut, um, measuring the flow rates, the local flow rates in the gut, the mixing. The thing I'm really keen to exploit that we've never really exploited is the sort of shear rate, the rate at which food's breaking down in the gut. Um, a bit like your teeth grind it up, your stomach grinds it up, your colon, um, your, your, your small bowel causes uh, um, emulsification of fats. So lots of different measures. Those kind of diagnostics, what sort of broad uses can you see them being applied to do ultimately? Uh, I would say that, uh, you know, Scarred Liver Project has been one of the outputs from the first BRC. Um, we had 
I would say three lines in our first BRC application, 2007 and eight. And that has now changed uh, way the people are identified uh, with chronic liver disease uh, in the community and suitable uh, appropriate uh, patients are referred to the secondary care for a further test in a cost-effective way, uh, in a patient-friendly way, and in a way where patients don't have to come to hospital for all the time. Uh, in the same way, we want to uh, change the way the liver cirrhosis is really also monitored and uh, identify appropriate patient for intervention, looking at more sophisticated MRI measures where we can measure the pressure building up in the circulation of the liver, where you can look at how the liver problem affects multiple organs. Um, coming to the test which Penny mentioned, um, abdominal pain is very common problem in uh, children and uh, most common uh, reason for it to constipation. But um, there is no way other than doing an X-ray for children, uh, which is not a necessary exposure to radiation, a very crude way of uh, diagnosing or even telling why there is a problem. So this will transform actually pediatric practice. Um, when when these uh, capsules which Luca is making becomes available. One of the um, satisfying things for me is being able to put onto a solid physical basis some of these apparently psychosomatic conditions or um, I'm not sure if that's quite the appropriate word but potentially psychosomatic conditions um, where there is it's unclear where the origin of clinical symptoms and if we can give people a physical understanding of their condition or not that's important I think. One of the other areas I, I wanted to get on to was patient involvement as well. Are there any particular um, areas or initiatives that people have been involved in that you highlight there? It's been remarkable for me to see how that's sort of grown over the last decade. Um, to be quite fair, we were, we were relatively rudimentary when we started. You know, we got five or six patients with different conditions to sit in a room and look at our patient information sheets and, you know, to change the sort of wording on them. Um, and, and over the last 10 years, I think we've involved patients in a much more meaningful way. Um, and that's related to the initiatives of NIHR, but also our own local initiatives. And, and we've been fortunate enough to have some, some really good um, dedicated PPI officers. And one in particular, Andy Ragg, was, was, um, was instrumental um, in getting patients not just to do what I call the sort of you know, the tick box exercises or the window dressing around that, but actually to sit there and um, create um, uh, or contribute to research ideas, to help design the studies, to sit onto trial groups. Um, and, and we've expanded enormously from that sort of, from the early days to, to, to now where we've got a patient advisory group of, of around 60 to 70 people. And, and that's now fed into the much larger um, biomedical um, a research centre. Um, and the influence of that PPI group has not just been in Nottingham, but it's had a national contribution. So people are aware of the James Lind, um, Lind Alliance and the JLA, and the Nottingham PAG group really fed into two major um, 
schemes of that, including non-alcoholic fatty liver disease um, and one of the alcohol initiatives to actually sit there and help do the, the priority setting. Um, and I know Gordon's had some, some you know, very constructive um, relationships with the PPI, so I'd be interested in his thoughts as well, really. Last night, um, I was on the phone with Guru at six, and I told him I need to hang up because I have a meeting. And in fact, the meeting was to, uh, it was the first focus group meeting because again, back to outcomes, we want to develop a work stream to try and investigate what good drugs are to treat a condition called proctitis. Proctitis is inflammation of the lower end of the colon. But the problem with proctitis is it's always excluded from trials because industry has no interest and it's very hard to measure symptoms because there's no measures because the measures are have been born to measure inflammation in the whole colon, not the last few inches. So the first thing we needed was get a bunch of clinicians, but as well a bunch of patients together and saying, okay, fine, is this important? How is it important? What are the treatment options? And this was the first step in what we call a Delphi process, try and define and quantify the problem, which is then going back to the NIHR saying, hello, this is a problem. Uh, the NIHR hasn't seen this yet, but we're working to, to highlight the problem through PPI, through what we call the NIHR bioresource, which has a, is a huge repository of patients that Nottingham heavily, heavily contributes to. And again, it shows how, if you like, uh, wide and, and cross-fertilizing the NIHR is. Um, I have access to patients in Southampton and Cambridge who, are, who all have a condition which Nottingham itself cannot answer, but because of the expertise we bring in, we can answer that question. But if you like, this is the reverse of it, not just creating an outcome measure, but actually, actually using patients, helping with working with patients to highlight a problem and focus a problem, create the solution for the problem. And, and, and that's pretty much work from left to right, really. So working with patients throughout. I just want to highlight that in the last few years um, with Lucas project, we have developed a pediatric um, group um, to give us feedback on how they feel, how they want to really design studies. And um, I have started developing more ethnic minorities involvement and try and make sure that um, um, their views are heard, ethnic specific issues are incorporated into our study designs, uh, suitable patient public, uh, um, advisory people are involved in it. So it's important to really show that we are growing in that as well over a period of time. So aligned to PPI, I think another important aspect um, is, is the public engagement with science. And I think we've seen that really in COVID of how the, the public have wanted to be educated about the science of disease. And, and I think we've had a strong reputation in Nottingham doing that. We used to have an annual event where we used to get members of the public to come around all the science stations you know, and see how the cameras work, see how physics principles work, see how the culture mediums work. And, and we've also engaged with local schools. On a national level, um, Penny, Guru and I had the privilege um, to set up uh, an exhibition at, at the Royal um, Society Summer Science Exhibition in 2013. And um, we were the first NIHR organization um, to present um, at that. Um, and we were able to sort of engage with the public, you know, almost, I think a thousand people came through um, that stand over a week. 
we had patient stories, we had an MRI app, we had a spongy liver to show what scarring is about. And 10,000 people visited the website um, and we got sort of national media and radio sort of media coverage from that. Before I move on to the, the kind of looking to the future bit of this, are there any other bits of current things that are going on that anybody wants to flag up? The sort of spectroscopy experiments, which are slightly different, they're much, they are possibly more basic science, um, understanding the biochemistry and physiology, which would hopefully allow us to develop future markers that would be clinically valuable. But at this point, they are in the very early stage, they're big heroic experiments um, that, you know, uh, cost a lot of money and take a lot of time. But then hopefully they will provide either better understanding of the diseases and the, the therapies or new markers. And I think we're probably in the former stage at the moment. It's more likely to be better understanding the, the drugs themselves or the treatments or the, um, the conditions rather than the markers, but they can lead to markers. On the basis that they're big, expensive ones that take up a lot of time, Penny, do you want to describe them a bit so, you know, <laughs> what's going on? There are some that involve people uh, drinking or eating something that's got, has been labelled with a different um, uh, isotope. So it's not radioactive, but it's, it's got a different NMR property. And so we can then follow that isotope into the body and watch how it's chemically metabolized in the body. But producing a ray, uh, an, an isotope labeled uh, drink, so means say growing carrots in special sorts of CO2, uh, is quite difficult and expensive. So they can be you know, thousands of pounds worth of drinks. You really don't want to knock them over. Um, and then they're going to be followed over several hours. Many of our experiments take several hours because we're studying the physiological process. And then they'll be coming back several times, maybe over several weeks. Um, and then they'll be taking blood samples. You're not just doing the MRI, you're taking multiple different measures. And this applies to a lot of these studies. We're taking blood samples, we're taking um, cardiovascular measurements. And then all that data has to be processed and some of it requires other people to do other processing using other analytical techniques. And then all brought back together and put into physiological models. So it's complicated for the patients or volunteers. It's complicated for a whole range of different scientists. It involves nurses. Um, and lots of different specialities to bring the data together to get the final result. And one thing I think we haven't mentioned as we've gone along, I heard um, a number of people sort of hesitate when they went to say names, is that none of this is the, the four of us, obviously. There's a lots of different people involved. Yeah, I would say uh, critical mass means that we are just four of us on talking on behalf of about 50 people who are in different... Um, seniority of the um, clinical and academic careers. Um, it includes, currently we are supporting in some form or shape, uh, about 100 PhD students or postgraduate students, um, some scientists, some clinicians. Um, we have literally 50 uh, investigators of different um, grades who all contribute to this. And these were a spectrum of non-clinical people, as Penny mentioned, um, engineers who you would never think would be working on Crohn's disease. I've got, in fact, a PhD student who is actually a gym trainer, but he works on spectroscopy investigating fatigue. And he, he's really perfect because he really makes patients do exercise in a magnet. So it, it, it's perfect for this. I wouldn't do it. I couldn't do it. 
but and and we've got clinicians as well so i guess this is back to you guru what are the the kind of three big things that we're looking forward to over the over the next few years with any luck by 2035 over two-thirds of the population will have more than one health condition our focus is taking uh, gastroenterology hepatology and pancreatology as a our area of expertise how do we identify uh, these clusters where the organ interacts with other organ in a mechanistic way. We will also look at what the new tests we need to identify this uh, group of people who will get in the future multiple morbidity and how to monitor them and also use food as a way of intervening with this. Uh, how does food modulate the biology of the gut and metabolism of the liver and how it can really target multiple health conditions in a way, as well as how advanced technology help us to make a step change in both uh, uh, diagnosis and uh, interventions. You also mentioned the, what can be bracketed under infection. You know, infectious um, are more common and have more consequence in people with comorbidity. Um, COVID-19 has brought it forward, but our expertise also is in clostridium deficit. It occurs in elderly people who are well made vulnerable by chronic conditions, which they have accumulated over the years. So they are need to be dealt with so that their infection is treated in a way that it doesn't really make the their physical state much worse than better. By the end of we have got rid of it. So these are specific challenges we are addressing as well. We also talked about um, looking at physiology and metabolism. So is that something that maybe Neil and Gordon want to speak to? Talking about metabolism, um, I think, for instance, one of the very underplayed and very under-researched area of inflammatory bowel disease is specifically metabolism and food intake. And what some of the work we've done through the BRC and through other matched funding is looking at investigating so that historically patients with Crohn's have always been labeled as under-eating. And actually our work has shown that actually they don't under-eat, they equally eat, just that they just eat differently. And some of the work we've shown now is that they eat less protein, for instance. And the way they handle protein is completely different. And the way their muscles handle protein is completely different. So can we optimize protein intake to help with patients with Crohn's disease? And we know that these patients lose muscle and are fatigued. So can we use the techniques we have? We involve MRI, involve spectroscopy, but as well involve other colleagues that have skills in food intake studies and acute feeding studies where we can track protein intake to try and develop this as an intervention for patients with Crohn's, with liver disease, who lose muscle, who we can reverse through protein intake or exercise. So I think there's a number of cross-fertilizing pro uh, projects that we have the skill through patients and colleagues to actually answer. Well, that's, that's, for instance, one of the projects we want to do about metabolism and, in this case, food intake. I'm quite interested in how multimorbidity might actually change how we think and manage disease. And how, for example, 
um, it, it aligns with the changing infrastructure of the NHS. So to give you a much more specific example, you know, one of the things that we're thinking about as, as the NHS involves is taking care out from secondary care and thinking much more about it in a, in a community basis. And people have talked about community diagnostic hubs and, and things like that. Well, if you take Guru's understanding of multimorbidity and you start to put those some of those diseases together in clusters, actually, it might be more logical to look at look after those and diagnose those in those clusters in a community setting. So we can diagnose, stratify those diseases, give patients a prognosis and offer new treatments. And therefore, that to me is, is quite an exciting way of how our BRC will evolve scientifically, but also in parallel with the way the NHS hopes to go. It's a system biology approach. You need to really apply to it where you can investigate multiple pathways or interrogate multiple pathways in one go at one time and um, come up with the gist of it in one um, way and then narrow it down. So that is includes some technology like metabolomics, um, proteomics, um, genomics. So Neil's work, original work was involving developing diagnostics in that way. So that is where Neil will uh, advise us. As well, I think something else Neil brings in is, is biomarker development, which I think we all tend to use this this word very loosely, and I, I and I and I think so specifically, for instance, in inflammatory bowel disease, the, 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 if I if we can actually measure, manage to measure fibrosis scarring, that will be a huge game changer, because then we can actually start deciding fibrosis is not reversible, who needs surgery, who does not, and industry is not very good at has not yet developed antifibrotic drugs in Crohn's disease because we cannot measure fibrosis. So using uh, needs expertise in biomarker development to actually create a very refined biomarker and Penny's expertise at measuring this through imaging. I think we've got two very good colleagues with, uh, with me perhaps bringing the idea and the patients work together to develop the future. So I think back to what, where we start. So just to kind of pick up on that biomarkers and the imaging idea, Pe Penny, what would you say you're kind of looking to in the, the future over the next few years? There's two, two sides of around a, a, a seesaw. So one side is making things clinically robust and usable. So we have studies that last seven hours. We have measurements in liver patients that take, you know, two hours in at one time point. We need to to to, um, uh, to, to, to distill our measurements into the key time points, the key key measures that are clinically sensitive, and that's one area of work. And on the other side, it's finding new markers. And I think that means digging down into the biochemistry and the physiology further. So my personal interest at the moment is on spectroscopy and what we call CES, which is another type of CES spectroscopy. So trying to get the sort of biochemical information out of the tissue or at least some, some degree of chemical index out of the tissue. But I think that we, we have to always avoid the physicists going off and playing games and coming up with new techniques they've always got to be grounded in making them useful and keep pushing at making things quick and cost effective and clinically helpful to patients so both of those 
kind of, I guess, to, to wrap up, and that's probably going to come back to you, Guru. If we look, I don't know, four, what, four years, five years down the line, where would you want to see the GI research in Nottingham? What would you, or what would you expect it to be? Yeah, we would uh, start seeing some um, uh, interventions um, coming to clinical practice. So like I mentioned, um, we are excellent at um, two ends, um, which Penny highlighted. I would say the depth, which is absolutely doing non-invasively the cellular science, um, measuring how the cell produces ATP, for example. Um, to how we can really bring it to a clinical practice and make a test out of it. And we have got that covered. We've got the science there and we have got expertise and a process um, uh, as well. What I want to see now is an intervention. So how we can change it now. Um, and I think industry always has a strong uh, presence in this area because they can invest um, in so much faster. But um, what we want to do is find repurposed drugs, which are much help, much more helpful in a multimorbidity state. You don't need to kind of find a new drug to target fibrosis in the liver, as well as in the lung, as well as in the inflammatory bowel disease, saying, well, what's a common underlying principle what we have, we can use it very creatively, cost-effectively to solve it. Same way, I would say that many of the antecedent events or precursor for it is lifestyle, uh, diet. So we want to find modulate function of the gut and through that function of the body using modification of the food that we eat, much, much more uh, practical, easy to uh, implement. So again, food science is one of the strengths of Nottingham and uh, we've got um, expertise in the lumen as well as in the liver. So we want to make the most of those. I would like to see some interventions which we deliver in the next five years. Well, thank you very much, everybody. I think that's just about it. That's brilliant. I was hoping to pick on Neil more, but we'll try again next time. <laughs> <laughs> Next submission. Next pre-submission. Thank you very much, guys. All I right, that's that. brilliant. Thank you very much. Matt has got something. Yeah, thanks. There are links in the show notes for more information on clinical research in Nottingham, and the website is nottinghambrc.nihr.ac.uk. Our email and social media links are there too. If you want to stay up to date with the Clinical Research Podcast, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google, wherever you normally get your podcasts. The more shows are rated and reviewed, the more search engines like them and the easier it is for people to find us. So if you can subscribe and rate and review us, you'll be doing it for science, not just for our egos.